The espresso machine, which I care for as if for part of my own body, has been misused again. Someone has thrown away one of the metal cups by accident, and the pump has been left on too long. It stays unclean the whole day. I have posted a list of instructions and given it a demonstration, and people still cannot or will not care for it as I do. I weep as I try to fix the machine, realizing that even if I haven't convinced the others, it's part of me, I seem at least to have convinced myself. Hello and welcome, I'm Douglas Bowles, and this is 42 Minutes, a podcast about meaning from SyncBook Radio and distributed by thesyncbook.com. You can find our archives at 42minutes.com and you can reach us by sending a message to mail at 42minutes.com. You can also follow our tweets at Sync42 and at SyncBook. It's Tuesday, March 5th, 2019, and that means we will continue into our look at Treefort and all its associated ancillary properties. Today we'll argue the merits of Storyfort for 42 minutes by meeting Sarah Manguso, author most recently of 300 Arguments, published in 2017 by Grey Wolf Press. She appears at Storyfort Saturday, March 22nd at 2 p.m. at the Oahe. Sarah Manguso is the author of seven books, 300 Arguments, a work of aphoristic autobiography and a pocket-sized foray into the frontier of contemporary nonfiction writing was named a book of the year by more than 20 publications, including NPR and BuzzFeed. Her other nonfiction books include Ongoingness, The End of a Diary, 2015, an essay on self-documentation, motherhood, and time, The Guardians, 2012, an essay on friendship and suicide, and The Two Kinds of Decay, 2008, an essay on living with chronic illness which was shortlisted for the Welcome Trust Book Prize and longlisted for the Royal Society Winton Prize. Manguso's story collection, Hard to Admit and Harder to Escape, was published by Maxini's in 2007, and it was preceded by two poetry collections in 2006 and 2002, poems of which won a 2003 Pushcart Prize and appeared in four volumes of the Best American Poetry series. Manguso is a recipient of the 2003 Hodder Fellowship from Princeton, and the 2007 Joseph Brodsky Rome Fellowship Prize, and a 2012 Guggenheim Fellowship in general nonfiction. She holds degrees from Harvard College and the Iowa Writers' Workshop. Her writing has been published in Harper's, the London Review of Books, the New York Review of Books, the New Yorker, and the Paris Review, among other publications. Her books have been translated into six languages. She currently teaches in the MFA program at New England College and lives in Los Angeles. More information about her can be found on her website, sarahmanguso.com. It really is a great honor to be welcoming Sarah to the program. Good morning, Sarah. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you, Doug. Thank you. So I have a page of crazy notes, but I think I need to start with Mary Oliver. In Boise, we have this great literary foundation called The Cabin, and they do a readings and conversations series every year. And one year they brought Mary Oliver and she read poems, um, and, which was fabulous, but it was really interesting because she was just doing poem after poem and there was no no pause to like take it in. It was just, it was uh, relentless. Like she would read a poem and then just like, just like doing a greatest hits almost kind of thing. But I wonder, 
you read your 300 arguments for in an audiobook version. I wonder, you know, do you have that same experience where you need to sit with each thought or do you intend to kind of read them one after another? Oh, man. Um, I don't think I've ever been compared to Mary Oliver, so thank you for that. Um, I guess, uh, well, recording the audiobook was different from giving a public reading because I was, I mean, I, I had been, I, I'd almost never been so alone when I was recording it, which suited me. You know, I was in a soundproof room and my eyes were, uh, I guess my eyes were open because I was reading, but um, I felt like I was in a sensory deprivation chamber. Um, whereas, yeah, it's always interesting to see which writers are really good at patter between chapters or between poems and which writers just forego it on purpose and which writers seem to be foregoing it, you know, not on purpose, but out of necessity for, uh, you know, social anxiety or, or whatever. I, I started out as a poet and I went to a lot of poetry readings and um, poets are, there's sort of like a greater burden of needing to entertain the audience between poems, I think on a poet than on say like a, you know, writer of, sustained prose who can just sort of read a chapter or read a, an essay in full. And um, at least when I was younger, uh, there was a lot of conversation about like how much patter was appropriate or, you know, whether you should be yourself uh, or, you know, like inhabit a character when you were doing your patter or, um, you know, whether, whether like, you know, you could, you could just do patter and maybe not even have to read at all. And um you know, I sort of, I sort of miss those debates. I don't go to as many uh, readings anymore, just because of the necessities of my surrounding life. But, um, but that the Mary Oliver reading sounds really interesting. I mean, I will say that when I was um, when I was uh, in graduate school, one of my teachers gave a reading, and um, he just he read his poems. He maybe had two or three sentences of patter in about 40 minutes, and then he walked off the stage without the sort of, you know, the the voluminous thanks that usually people feel obligated to include at the end. And you know, I I, I think it's appropriate to thank the audience, but um, I was just so struck by like the total, um, the total sort of like ego erasure of not like going back into his body and like being a human person, thanking the audience. It really struck me, but I, I never had the, um, I never had the energy to do that myself. Well, so from a, like a writing standpoint, I'm curious about the difference between thoughts and writing or thinking and writing in terms of, of what you do, because it's so seamless. You make it look like anyone can do it. It's just, oh yeah, she's just like thinking out loud. But clearly, you know, there's so much more going on here. I wonder how, how much time you have to spend with each, each um, little chunk. Oh, a lot, definitely. Um, yeah, I mean, obviously you understand that if, you know, the fact that my books are short doesn't mean that I wrote them quickly 
you know, it doesn't really scale. Like you can, you can write a long book quickly and you can take forever to produce a short book. And the artifact of the actual book afterward gives very little, um, you know, even though people love to sort of try to, you know, excavate the mystery of how the book came to be, I don't think the artifact of the book really gives any indication of how it came to being. So, yeah, I mean, and, and so your question about like thought um, or idea, maybe maybe like philosophy or abstract idea, uh, you know, whether whether that is uh, a large part of the work you know, for me, it is. Um, I was just talking to a, a writer friend of mine, um, mostly because I have this uh, this sort of this lifelong problem of um, being very bad at casually describing what I do to people that I meet, say, at my son's baseball game. Uh, and, you know, the other parents are like, well, I'm a commercial real estate guy or, you know, oh, I'm a doctor. And, then you know, and then I sort of like try to say like, oh, I'm a writer. And they're like, oh, because I live in L.A. Oh, do you, you know, you write for a show? And no, I write books. Oh, what kind of books? Nonfiction books. What kind of nonfiction books? And then I just start sputtering for like 45 seconds and it's very uncomfortable. So, you know, my friend actually encouraged me to say, it's kind of like literary philosophy about things like grief and suffering. And I've, I've actually been like, you know, like deciding that this is the year finally that I'm going to somehow become able to describe what I do quickly and in such a way that doesn't sound pretentious or obfuscating or, like I'm making it up as I go along, which is how I feel I always have described what I do up to this point. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I guess I'm like learning to not be afraid of the word philosophy and describing what it is that I do all day. Well, in your writing, you, you write about longing a lot, but part of the longing is to, you know, maybe write in other forms at times. And so, you know, yeah. part of the writing time is spent thinking about what you should be writing or being a different writer altogether, uh, which, which is really interesting because I don't, you know, I don't think that's a, like a, a unique thing, but could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, sure. Um, it sounds like you were reading into parts of 300 arguments, which for a time I was describing as a book that was about failure or about the failures of midlife, um, or about, you know, just midlife in general, being at the apex of the life narrative, or if not the apex, then at least halfway through. And so much of what I thought I was writing about was was failure, coming to terms with failure, coming to terms with having to shed obsolete desires, obsolete expectations, self-expectations. And, um, you know, because it is largely autobiographical, like everything I do, uh, a lot of it, yeah, a lot of it did have to do with, um, you know, my doing these thought experiments of what it would be like to be a different writer, writing a different book, or, you know, to have been a different writer or a different person, or to just have had a different mind grappling with the same subjects. And um, that, uh, you know, th those feelings haven't, like, I haven't shed them entirely, having published 300 arguments that but as often happens when I publish a book, I do feel most like, let's say like 80% done 
with the material that I was that I was thinking and writing about in that particular book. And then there's this little like leftover bit that is sort of the um, I don't know, it's like this this little crystal of the previous book that I carry into what I do and what becomes a sort of origin point for the next book. And um, what I'm working on now is something I, I've sort of been trying to do all along and, and that I've talked about as a, you know, the book that I'm about to write, and I've just never written it, but I think I'm writing it now. It's a book about growing up in uh, in greater Boston and just the, um, what it's like to grow up in a town where the social pecking order of the 17th century is more or less unchanged in the 20th when I was growing up and what it's like to be an outsider where, you know, a fair bit of the population is outsider, but that has really no bearing on who runs the place and who who is in charge of everything important. Um, Kind of sounds like, you know, America in a nutshell, which I I didn't think I was um, actually writing about, but Um, But yeah, I mean, I guess you could say too that this seed of wanting to be a different person is is something that, you know, one cannot help but think about growing up so obviously an outsider in a community like that. Was this the same manuscript that ends up as a carcass under the house? Oh, yeah. mm, No, yeah, this is this is sort of distinct from the things that, that wind up under the house. This is like this is almost like a book that's out at the horizon that I can kind of see uh, approaching as the next book. But then when I get close to it, or, you know, historically, when I've gotten close to it, I've started cheating on it and writing a different book and then so produced that different book. 300 Arguments was written like that. Um, so this is the the 16 pages that, that you work on for 30 years? That's the... Uh, Did I say that? Yeah, that sounds familiar. I mean, my first, um, my first sort of, you know, forthrightly autobiographical book, The Two Kinds of Decay was supposed to be this book, you know, it was supposed to be the Boston book or the, um, you know, the book about the book about, um, you know, being white, but not white enough in Massachusetts. And, you know, since then, I've written like, you know, a couple more books and then 300 arguments. So it, it, this is, it's like sort of a magic book. It's, it's kind of like stone soup, but, uh, but not quite, do you know that children's story stone soup? Sure. Sure. Okay. Yeah. So it's sort of like, you know, a soup that, that comes to be by magic just from a stone. Um, sometimes I feel like almost all of my books have come to be, and this idea of the Boston book is the stone and it's just, um, you know, it, it, it's a book that hasn't gotten written yet, but, you know, still impels me to produce other books instead because it's it's almost too terrible to look at. Well, so the, um, I guess the reason why that was such a curiosity, the idea of the Boston book is a curiosity to me, is because, um, so David Foster Wallace kind of wrote a Boston book too, but he was also someone kind of wanting to be, you know, a better writer or perfect or, um, you know, kind of obsessing about how he should be writing instead of doing whatever it is, you know, he was doing. 
What what's his what's his Boston book? I have to confess I don't know which one that is. Infinite Jest it kind of takes place in Boston. Oh really? Yeah, and, so, and oh, but it also okay. is this like intersection of race and class, and you know it's about America. Um, and so, but it definitely has kind of like this this '90s lens, like definitely. Uh, it's of its moment. He's a progressive guy, but it definitely is still of its moment. And, you know, so it, it seems like the culture has shifted since then. Um, but I just, I, I, it would be really interesting to kind of uh, juxtapose your Boston book and his Boston book is kind of... <laughs> Jesus. The, yeah, you're, so you're, you're really making sure that I'd never write this book. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, so there's David Foster Wallace, and all you have to do is write as well as David Foster Wallace, and then you'll get it done. <laughs> Um, no, I'm, I'm just teasing. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, obviously I haven't read Infinite Jest, um, judging by my question. I am, I am more a fan of his essays than of his fiction. And, um, and, um, yeah, I mean, I'm just going to have to forget that he already wrote my Boston book, apparently. Uh, no, I'm, again, I'm just, I'm just teasing. Um, <laughs> I'm very sorry. Uh, but, um, <laughs> But I mean, something that something that you you're getting at with these questions is that um, there is a sense of obligation that one one grows if one is a good student, you know, sort of in one's teens. If one uh, you know enjoys, um, you know, as per drama of the gifted child, if one enjoys, um, you know, performing for the, uh, you know, judging authority figures in one's life, and I was definitely like that. You know, what happens to that feeling of obligation when one is uh, then fully mature? Does it? It doesn't go away. It, um, you know, you can work on shedding it, you can work on sort of like, you know, being the punk asshole that you weren't back in the day and doing something instead of the book that you feel obligated to write. Um, and, you know, this is this is something that I haven't, it's sort of just like a, like a, um, you know, baseline conflict that never goes away. Like, I feel obligated to write the Boston book, but obviously not enough to actually write it. There's also, and this is a you know, like a question that I always have is like, do you think people, we intellectually want things that we're just not suited for? And then there's things that we actually can do and that we fight, yeah. we fight against that. So like, uh, I always wanted to, you know, write narrative, but then for whatever reason, blogging ridiculous synchronicity blogs was so easy and I could just, you know, fill up pages and pages of that. But, you know, that's not a form that's established. So what do you tell people then? Yeah, I, I don't know, dude. I mean, you, you should ask my friend who, who you know, wrote my little elevator pitch for myself for the for my son's baseball games. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I believe and, um, you know, when I teach, I always insist to my students. It is something I believe that everybody has a natural register, a natural you know, I wouldn't say a, a, a voice. I think that's a little simplistic, but there's like a, a natural kind of uh, prosody or, you know, series of subjects that you're just sort of permanently interested in or, uh, you know, a way of solving writing problems that is some way innate to the person that you are. And it doesn't really suit people to try to do something out of obligation that they're 
ill-suited for. So, um, so yeah, it sounds like narrative isn't your thing, but certainly if you live in the world and have, um, you know, a desire to like be successful financially with your writing, then yeah, there's always this sort of siren's call to write a, you know, 400 page historical novel that goes in chronological order because like those books sell a lot of copies. You know, I, I am, I am constitutionally incapable of writing a book like that, but I mean, I totally understand where you're coming from. If that, if you sort of have this like lingering sense of obligation to produce a book like that. Well, sure. I have a Boston book too, but I don't want to make it to 30 years. Wait, it's not, I mean, quote unquote. It's not about Boston per se, but yeah, I understand what you mean. Yeah. (laughs) But I don't want to make it to 30 years and have like 16 pages of notes. You know, it would be nice to not be haunted by this demon. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, it sure would. (laughs) (laughs) Well, so like, let's talk about synchronicity. So you write autobiography, autobiography, autobiographically. And so sometimes life is stranger than fiction in that when we, when we think about coincidences and synchronicities, you actually call that like bad writing in your, in your arguments. What do you, what do you make of that? Yeah. The weirdness of life. Yeah. Well, yeah, the weirdness of life. Um, yeah, I mean, there, um, I think people who are aware of the larger culture of books, movies, and TV have a fairly sophisticated sense of what kind of narrative is credible. And there are there's, I think, a certain level of synchronicity that just reads as false or, you know, reads as incredible to somebody who's just, you know, sort of participating in popular culture, watching a TV show, reading a book. And yet, as you say, um, there's so much synchronicity in the actual world that it is often impossible to simply translate everything that happened into a novel because again you know there will be there will be events that don't seem credible and that um get sort of you know internally tagged by the reader as bad writing i am i guess lucky in that i've never really wanted to try to write um, fiction in that vein. Uh, I, I mean, I, I really just still haven't gotten past my original urge to just document. Um, documenting already seems, you know, it's functionally impossible to do, you know, perfectly. And so, um, you know, in my own work, I haven't found it necessary to sort of try to grapple with these synchronicities and render them in credible fiction. But, um, yeah, you asked me what I make of these synchronicities in life. Um, yeah, you know, for me, it, it, it's easy to capture them because I, I, all I am doing is documenting. I'm not, I'm not trying to kind of retranslate something into what would be, you know, credible entertainment narrative or, you know, credible, um, you know, chronological linear narrative. Well, I do think one of the arguments speaks to the idea of a biography where some of the the foreshadowing goes nowhere, you know, so like it actually, 
you can shape the biography so that you know you do have a narrative arc whereas in life you know there are plot lines that don't go anywhere yeah absolutely i think the line that you're thinking of is is one of my secret favorites it's um biographies should also include the events that failed to foreshadow and um that gets at something that I'm um, very vigilant toward when I'm reading life writing, the um, sense that somebody has kind of, you know, prearranged things to make the conclusions all look inevitable based on what has happened before. And I think if we're honest, there's really no, well, yeah, it's hard to say. I mean, it, it's it's exceptionally hard to write a narrative credibly, whether it's true or, you know, purportedly fictional. But I am very interested in not making life writing that consists simply of this sort of, you know, B because of A and C because of B and D because of C. Um, a sort of chronology because I mean the whole experience of life is that it, it you know we, we there is a chronology like you know we all we all are sort of following time into our graves to be a little goth about it but you know other than that we're just like things are happening it's not it's not you know not everything is a consequence of everything that's come before it there's so much extra stuff that 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 just doesn't participate in this linear rendering of a life and like a lot of that is the interesting stuff so this program does a, a, a book club and so we've kind of been thinking about the the idea of time and you know the same concepts that you're talking about um like borges the garden of forking paths where mm. looking back it's obvious but at any given point you know you could you could have gone a different direction altogether and then you know, looking back would have seemed obvious, you know, also. But then also, Nabokov's Ada, he's got, like, this mm -hmm. interesting relationship to time in that, too. And, you know, just trying to get to, like, some kind of surface now. Um, could you speak a little bit about, like, being a, a diarist? And are you still that? Um, yeah, Uh I, uh, well, I wrote a book about, about um, being a diarist and about what self-documentation had um, been to me in my life. And that book is called Ongoingness. And um, I, I do still continue the diary. And it's, um, you know, what I, what I was writing about in Ongoingness was this, um, really um, sort of um, functional changing of my mind that occurred not long after I gave birth to my son. And it wasn't as simple as, you know, first I was a diarist and it was all about me. And then I was a mother and my ego was gone forever. You know, it, it, it wasn't really like that, but there was um, what seemed early um, complex new attitude and new experience of time 
that had kind of welled up to replace the old experience of dealing with time before I ha had responsibility for this human child. And it's, um, uh, you know, it's, it's impossible for me to boil down to a talking point, really, you know, boiling it down to 90 pages or however long ongoing this is, was, um, was all I could manage. But the attitude that I have now to um, this, you know, ongoing project of self-documentation, which I've been doing since the 80s, you know, I, I think it has been permanently changed, but, um, you know, it's not as simple as like I was a diarist and now I'm not. I mean, I definitely, you know, I've already written in my diary today. I, uh, you know, I still edit it. I still revise it. I still, I still work on the prose in it because I want to, you know, I'm not, it, it, it's, um, it, there's uh, there's a line somewhere. Uh, you know, this might actually be in 300 arguments, but there's a line somewhere um, in which I say, um, "Shit, I completely forgot what I was going to say." It was about my diary, and then I just noticed something on my desktop. Okay, well, I'm going to pretend that you edit that out, even though this is live. Um, uh, I I once did an interview and. Um, my cat, who is now dead, but uh, my cat just meowed her ass off through the entire thing, and the um, it was decided to not edit the meows out, and it it turned out really great. I think I think it, it, the meows made it better. So um, so um, yeah, you know, I, I I trust you to to do whatever. But um, you asked me about uh, diary keeping and what what my thoughts were about being a diarist. Um, I guess those are some of my thoughts. Well, so the thing, uh, I guess the thoughts that I had around that are, uh, and maybe I read into this or maybe I actually read this, is that you didn't want to miss or lose life and so you were trying to put it down so that it was there and then you were worried yeah. about it and so you're worried about not just the memorable, memorable events of the day but the, the, the spaces between. And so when I, when I, uh, take in your your work there is this really fleeting quality that somehow you're able to capture like uh, when I'm walking the dog or something and you're you're looking up at the trees and the quality of light is such and you're just in that moment for a second and then you know then you move on and the moment's gone like you're somehow able to to put into amber those little moments you know one at a time does that feel like what you're doing or does that sound Definitely. crazy? Yeah. Yeah. No, no. You, you, you basically noticed what I am trying to do. And I'm so grateful to know that you've noticed that. Uh, yeah. It's, it's, I mean, is the sort of moments of high emotional amplitude falling in love, you know, your first experience of love, your first experience of death, your first experiences of abandonment. And um, it, it, I think those are really quite similar to everybody, every other human, you know, every other human person who's trying to have a life. It's the other parts, though, that are, I mean, they seem so important to describing or um to documenting a sensibility. And I think this, this 
old anxiety or, you know, maybe not even anxiety, but just like profound interest in trying to capture those was from a time before I could really articulate that this was the work that I wanted to do. You know, like, this, like, uh, what, you know, this, this form of life writing, this form of autobiographical prose, um, you know, was going to have to depend on trying to document those moments rather than, um, you know, these like moments that are, that are, you know, described as universal in the criticism, you know, like, oh, it's the universal, you know, this person is writing about herself, but it's just like, it's so universal because blah, 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 you know, like we're all, we all love, we all need, we all desire, we all feel lost, we all feel grief. And it it's like, it's, it's all the surrounding stuff that's, that's really important if you want to like be discovering something that isn't already so much in the world. In that same vein, I, I think I, I need to talk about the counter tenor's chin and maybe that goes back. Oh boy, yeah. <laughs> well, because somehow there's also this like, well, how do you even put that into words? There's the, the, it's so you, it's the numinous underpinnings that you're actually after, but it's the surface that we have to kind of focus on, but it's really the, uh, what, what do we, do you know, the, it, it's uh, the difference between, you know, there's something in, well, I can't even, I can't even do it. Um, somehow, the essence of beauty is encapsulated by the countertenor's chin, and then we kind of move into, like, Carl Jung and archetypes and stuff. Do you think about, you know, some of those kind of magic -y... Yeah, well, you know, you know what you, well, you know what you just remind me of is, is not Jung, but Plato. Plato in, oh boy, I want to say the symposium says that the, the origin of love, the origin of the purest feeling of love is in the appreciation of one beautiful body. And from appreciating one beautiful body of one beautiful boy, you can then appreciate all the beauty and all of the boys. And then you go up this sort of ladder of increasing abstraction and purity. And then you can appreciate the idea of beauty. And then you can appreciate, you know, and it, and it just like gets more, more um, abstract and vaster as he goes, but it does originate in just sort of like one quivering lustful feeling for one beautiful boy for, you know, for the countertenor, for the countertenor, um, for what part of the countertenor? Well, the chin, the chin of the countertenor. That's the origin of the purest feeling of love of which that narrator is capable. But then, like, as you were talking about the poet who wouldn't come back to his body, you know, sometimes we're trapped in our bodies and then we actually, you know, we're, we're forgetting that it's, it's, the, uh, it's the truth or the beauty underneath that is actually what's... Um, you know, compelling us, and then we, we lose ourselves in the countertenor's chin. I can think of worse things. <laughs> All right, well, so how did you get involved with Treefort? Oh, um, I, uh, this is a really easy question to answer. I, I got an email from the organizer, and uh, I had never been to Idaho before, and it, it, um, you know, I know it. I know it's a very beautiful place. The Pacific Northwest is fascinating to me, 
And um, I thought this is an opportunity. This is an opportunity that I absolutely have to take advantage of. And so I am very, very happy and lucky to be anticipating my first trip to Boise later this month. Excellent. And so as far as I could tell, I found you on the schedule on that Saturday at 2 that I mentioned. Are, are you, how long are you going to be there? And uh, do you have any plans? Are you doing anything beyond that? And, you know, what are you hoping to take in? Oh, yeah, definitely. I am, I am participating in a panel on Saturday, and then I'm going to be there uh, Sunday and Monday also. Um, I'm going to spend as little time as possible in my hotel room working on my novel, even though that's all I want to do. And, um, you know, I definitely want to go out and see nature. I maybe want to go to this um, bird sanctuary that I've been reading about. Oh, the World Center for Birds of Prey, is that the one? Yes, yeah, for Birds of Prey. Yes, that, that yeah, does it's... seem to be the one. Would you recommend that? I would, yeah. Good. It, it's, Good. Yeah. Uh, what else would you recommend? I don't know. <laughs> I know it's impossible to say. I, yeah, it, yeah, yeah. Sort of like I want to go to a restaurant. What restaurant would you recommend? Well, well you so know? like if you were if <laughs> you were out that. if you were out that way at the World Center for the Birds of Prey, and you wanted a bit more of a drive, you know, you could go to the Snake River Canyon and take that in. Um, there's lots of birds of prey out that way too, but. That's a pretty good little drive, but it's really pretty. Mm. I think when Mary Oliver was here, it was really funny because they took her to, she she griped a little bit on stage and said the, the place was called Bogus Basin, but we traveled up a mountain for a half an hour to get there, you know, so like she... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not much of a basin. No. Uh, but, you know, there's a river that runs through the, the middle of the city, and so there's lots of... Oh, yes. Yeah, there's a lot of green space, it looks like. Yeah. Um, but then there's the music festival going on, too, and it's uh, it's a lot of fun, too, just because there's a lot of cultural things that are all happening all right on top of each other. Oh, yeah, it's going to be a busy weekend, for sure. Are you going to travel with your, your family, or is it going to be a, like that kind of trip, or just a... Um, no, yeah, no, this time it's just going to be me, and... Um, it's, uh, yeah, my, my last work trip involved bringing my family, uh, but this one's just going to be me. And can you think of that like a vacation or is this work? Oh, absolutely. Yes. Oh, <laughs> it's, well, for me, work is vacation because, um, you know, my work is just, you know, writing whatever I want, uh, you know, with no thought to having to receive, um, you know, worthwhile remuneration for it. Um, so yes, work and vacation. Yes and yes. Well, so I think one of your arguments definitely dealt with that, where depending on how frequently you were getting paid, your productivity actually like increased or decreased. Is that still the case? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, you know, I think like just about every other writer, um, I am always striking a balance between wishing I were getting paid more and being grateful I'm getting paid at all. Yeah. You know, something else I wonder about is, is 
your publisher, Grey Wolf, it seems like a lot mm -hmm. of the really important books of our time are being published through that publishing house. You know, do you think there is, like, you're part of some larger, like, uh, nonfiction movement that typifies our moment? Um, I, I don't know that it typifies our moment, but it, it definitely typifies the um, publishing trends of this moment. Uh, but but I don't I don't think oddly shaped essays are really anything new in or next to the you know existing canon. Grable definitely has an amazing list though, and I'm so grateful to be part of it. They um, yeah they 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 just um, started out going on the the you know. The fine taste of uh, you know, my editor and others, and um, you know, I, I I think that Gray Wolf uh, has made it clear that they are open to publishing certain kinds of nonfiction that might not receive um, you know much representation at a at a bigger, more traditional house, and so um, I think they're in the enviable position now of um, a lot of interesting writers being um, being really excited to show work to them. Well, that was 42 Minutes. Thank you so much for sharing it with us. Thank you, Doug. It was a pleasure. You bet. You've been listening to Sarah Manguso on 42 Minutes, a production of SyncBook Radio and thesyncbook.com. Check out her website at sarahmanguso.com. For more information about the SyncBook, our guests, to check out past shows, or to subscribe to the podcast via iTunes, please be sure and visit our website at thesyncbook.com. If you like this podcast, check out others. It's currently all of the SyncBook radio archives are free. We also feature a great search engine to help you find what you need. If compelled, click on the support link at the bottom of the homepage. All this and more can be found at thesyncbook.com. Thanks so much. And here we are again.